Hello, and welcome to the Digital Workspace Works podcast. I'm Ryan Purvis, your host, supported by our producer Heather Bicknell. In this series, you'll hear stories and opinions from experts in the field, stories from the front lines, the problems they face and how they solve them, the areas they're focused on from technology, people and processes, to the approaches they took that will help you to get to the scripts for the digital workspace inner workings. So welcome, Lloyd, to the Digital Workspace Works podcast. Can you tell us a bit about yourself? Definitely. So background, entrepreneur, refugee of the Gulf War, immigrant founder. And that's how I would like to start because my journey as in entrepreneurship goes all the way back to the Gulf War. And I think that shaped my experience in entrepreneurship. I think I was like nine or 10, wake up one day, mom says, you can't go to school anymore. The Gulf War is hit. And my first reaction is, yes, I don't have to go to school. And then when I start to sink in, I go down the building with my dad and there's a bunch of worried faces and you don't know if you're going to live or die. The phones don't exist. The internet doesn't exist. And what I experienced that day and, and through that time was the biggest grassroots evacuation movement. Every building became a sub-community coordinated with one another. And like, you know, in, in that building, when I went down, the security had lapsed in the country, right? And people were like, I'll guard the building from 12 to 6. Somebody's like, I'll guard the building from 6 to 12. Somebody else is like, I'll organize food supplies. And if somebody's family members were displaced, there was another person to give them shelter. And so every building became a sub-community and the word of mouth spread from one place to another, another coordinated with governments, with embassies, with the UN, and became the largest grassroots evacuation movement. But the purpose was so big and the way that these people were communicating who weren't leaders by any means, they were just taking charge of a situation. I mean, difficult times, right? Desperate times lead to desperate measures. But I felt as a kid so connected to that purpose that I felt like a little ramble, like whatever little I did was a big part of it. But it taught me two things which shaped my life. One, it taught me the entrepreneurial spirit. And, you know, in 2023, we look at entrepreneurship as a way to make money. But the entrepreneurship spirit is nothing but taking an obscure idea to execution and impact while dealing with extreme risk, uncertainty and ambiguity. And that drove me because I was so pumped every day of those three, four months that we went through that. The other thing it taught me was that the power of people in coming together to create a big impact. It was mind-boggling how they were coordinating. And those two experiences shaped the rest of my life, those two, those two learnings, because a few years later, we ended up moving to Canada. I studied engineering. As soon as I graduated engineering, I was craving risk and uncertainty. <laughs> I didn't want to do a nine-to-five job. And uh, I was craving community. And like all my life through the exit at Boast, I have only been a part of communities and I have been a part of chasing risk and uncertainty. It's, it's quite an amazing way you've summarized both those things because, you know, and, and maybe it's a, um, it's a Middle Eastern African thing because community is very strong in those, in those areas. And, and, I, and I talk specifically around tribal sort of things. Uh, and I'm not saying other countries don't have it, don't get me wrong. It's just what I've experienced personally. So that's why I can draw from it. it you know, there's probably lots of, you know, parts of the world where they have their own tribal things. But, you know, when I look at the stuff that we've been successful with in, in what we've done, it's because of good communities of people that, that are like, not necessarily like-minded in the sense that they all think the same way, 
but like mine in the sense that they want to solve the same problem or get to the same objective and they're willing to give up something to get there um to be part of the community or the tribe that, that does that and then because of that kind of culture and in, in in africa you call it ubuntu which is i am because we are you do get that multiplier effect uh and it, and it requires you being a little bit unselfish for the greater good and it's just the way you explain it it's so true and i think entrepreneurship is is that as well and i remember reading a very good book uh, written by a nigerian journalist and the thing that he talked about which was the the really interesting thing was in certain tribes if you start a business the tribe will come and buy from you even if they have nothing to do with what you sell but they'll all buy one thing from you because that gets you going and then through that you'll have a you'll you'll you'll, you'll build relationships to care on selling and, and, and working with your product but i think it was the jewish community that did that and i wonder if if, if that's something along the line of what you've done or, or if it resonated with you as well definitely that's exactly what i felt right and also my parents so before that my parents grew up in india and okay. my yeah. my mom specifically grew up in the slums of mumbai okay oh wow yeah my my fondest memories as a child were spent every summer in the slums of mumbai and tv watching was a communal thing because not every home had a tv puddles would turn into ponds and we'd be swimming together in there every activity was a communal thing we were running and playing jumping in from house to house you know the houses did have toilets in there so we would go to the public bathrooms and i kid you not man i spent every summer there those were my fondest memories as a child until my until we moved to the west and yep. every summer when that we had to go back home to kuwait i would cry and not want to leave and and so it's it's been part of my life all through and what you said is right right um, and i'll give you an example in modern day times you know forget about tribes but a company like harley davidson that almost went bankrupt in the 80s what did the company do the leadership came and they rebuilt the company on the ethos of community it had direct oversight from the president the execs had to go and start writer clubs employees became writers writers became employees they created the save harley movement but not only that they now have run campaigns to donate to breast cancer and autism they come together on a weekend like weekend warriors around the camaraderie of writers right and they come together to support causes and you know this company almost went bankrupt in the 80s when the japanese manufacturers came in with bringing motorbikes right commoditized electronics and so the key learning there is technology comes and goes right we started with electronics being commoditized and then the internet and then the cloud and then social and then mobile and now ai we don't say electronics company or mobile company or social or internet company and we won't say ai company anymore but what will remain constant is human to human connection yesterday's innovation is always tomorrow's commodity but if you build a community you won't become a commodity and that is that is a key key learning i've experienced in my life as i wrote the book and talked to thousands of people and looked at hundreds of companies you know what's really interesting is as i was doing my research and collating this information i found a four step path between every obscure idea that eventually became a global phenomenon interesting a four, a four step path that 
is common to every obscure idea that eventually became a global phenomenon. From Christ to CrossFit. That is huge when you say that. From Christ wow. to CrossFit. And that is people listen to you or buy your stuff when you have something to say and you have an audience. You bring that audience together to interact with one another and you have a community. Now, when that community comes together around a greater purpose that's far beyond your product or profit or service, when the community comes together to create impact against a greater purpose beyond your product or profit, it becomes a movement. And when the movement has undying faith in its purpose through sustained rituals, it becomes a religion or a cult. And that is true for every obscure idea that eventually became so, a global phenomenon. So, so sorry, can we break that down into the simple four steps? Just because I, I, I struggle with these things unless they're simple. So what would be step number one? Build an audience. Step number two, turn that audience into a community. Step number three is find a greater purpose, align people, and drive people to creating a movement. And then step one, number four, is sustained rituals to build, become a cult-like brand. And I obviously, the book is not four steps, it's 13 rules. So I distill that down. I, I even don't even mention this. I, I briefly mentioned this. But the goal was, if it's four things and it's so heavy, it's going to wear you down. So I turned those four things, the learnings from that is like 13 rules to build iconic brands with community-led growth. Because the key thing that takes you from audience to cult or religion is community. If you don't have a community in between, you'll stop at audience. And you see we're in the age of micro-influencers and influencers. Most have audiences. As soon as the influencer leaves or dies or vanishes, the audience is gone. Mm. Right? But if it has a co community around a cause, around a purpose, then it sustains and it sustains. And so that is, that is the key thing. And we can dive into any, any number of areas here, but that was, I think, a profound learning. You need rails for making this happen, right? One is communication. Because if you can't communicate, you can't connect. And if you can't connect, you have an empty room, no audience. Second is creation. And third is consistency. If you can communicate and create with consistency, you can build something big. A lot of people, what they do is they can communicate. They're super talented. They can create, but they stop. They stop. They, they, they just don't play the long game. And if you look at Mr. Beast or you look at, you know, Gary Vaynerchuk. So what's, what's really interesting with Gary Vee is when I graduated university, I wanted to go into business, although I graduated engineering. And I gravitated towards a sales job because the advice I got was sales is the best way to improve your communication. It'll force you to communicate day in, day out. And it's the best route to entrepreneurship. Yeah. So when I joined, I needed to learn a lot about sales and marketing in those days, in the early first two, three jobs. And everything I found was from HubSpot's inbound marketing community. So I joined that community and that became my next community probably after, after, you know, as an early adult. And I remember Gary Vaynerchuk had a two-hour video marketing uh, course on inbound marketing certificate. And he was evangelizing, chubby young guy, like evangelizing the power of video. He just never stopped, right? That's why he's Gary Vaynerchuk. Like Mr. Beast just never stopped or Warren Buffett just doesn't stop or even in B2B SaaS, Larry Ellison just doesn't stop. He owned every piece of share because... Compound, compound interest on consistency is what we call overnight success. No, yeah, exactly. I mean, we, we, we talked about this yesterday. Um, you know, a friend of mine started a business, it's been a year, but now it's an overnight success because they've been doing consistently the right things for a period of time and take a big risk. I mean, that, that entrepreneurship spirit. 
Um, they've taken the risk for a long time. Now it's starting to pay off. Um, and, and I think that's what, what the, the problem with, with the culture to some extent is today. People don't, if they don't see results straight away. Then they go, well, ah, it's not working for me. I'm just going to stop or do something else. And they keep flip-flopping between all these different things. And I think technology to some extent, you know, has, has influenced that where you go watch a 30 second TikTok video or an Instagram reel or whatever these things are. And because it doesn't go longer than 30 seconds, they think everything should take 30 seconds. Whereas if you read a, if you read a really long, like, you know, one of the, one of the, the big masterworks, you know, it's a thousand page book, you know, that, that book's not something you read in a week, you know, you read it in a, in, in a couple of months because it's so long. I mean, I'm thinking like, uh, the, the laws of power, for example, that's a really long detailed book. You can't read that in a, in a short period of time. You've got to give it like a, a, a law a day because it's just so dense. And and that staying power, I think, is an important, you know, skill uh, or aptitude. That's my point, basically. Definitely, definitely. And so, so you know, going back, I think those were some very formative experiences for me in building a company and everything in everything I've done. And you know, a lot of people say, "Oh, you're just lucky." Yes, I am lucky, hundred percent. Luck and risk are two sides of the same coin. The thing is, yep. a lot of people don't keep flipping. Right, flipping is consistency. You keep taking, you keep hitting risk, hit, keep hitting failure, keep hitting, 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 and then luck hits one day, right? But if you don't flip, you'll never get lucky. And a lot of people don't leave the house to create a network. They don't put themselves out there, and they just say you got lucky. Yes, I luck is the ten percent that puts the ninety percent in your favor. But to be able to get lucky, you got to flip the coin, right? Yeah, you got you got to make your own luck. Uh, I mean, I used to play baseball as a kid. And I had a coach and he used to say, you know, you make your own luck by practicing, practicing, practicing um, and, and looking at situational awareness and scenarios and, and that sort of thing. And I think that's, you know, always been how I've approached life is that you've got to practice certain skills to to be ready for that situation. You know, like you would go to gym to train a muscle, you've got to train yourself for, for the different things you're going to see and, and have to handle, um, which in the world that we live in it today has become more and more relevant because you know, people, as much as the technology is progressing, it's still kind of the same thing. It's just making it easier to do certain things. Uh, you if know, you don't I, take the opportunity. I love the, Sorry, I, love the gym ref- I love the gym reference you brought up, right? Because everything great is on the other side of pain. Pain is a precondition for growth. Much like in the gym, if you mm-hmm. lift heavier and heavier weights, you won't get stronger. So if you don't take on new challenges, don't challenge the status quo. If you if you don't expand your horizons, you're going to be where you are and you'll never achieve new heights. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I mean, with what you've done over, over your career, I mean, what would be, could you have sort of um, inflection points that you think about, like if you look backwards now and go, you know, this was a key thing for me, but I didn't realize at the time it was a key thing for me. Definitely. I'll go through some inflection points, I think, which will formulate why certain things happen now when you're going through it honestly man it all feels like luck even till today now i'm no longer in the company we yeah so we dropped 52 percent. we we sold 52 percent of the company cashed out still own a good chunk of the company but you know what till today i still feel i'm lucky man like every situation i've gone through in life i just i'm thankful that that happened because i know a lot of people who work really hard and they don't have those outcomes. And I know a lot of people 
who have even greater outcomes. So I think, you know, I truly believe in the in the power of luck. And of course, luck gets engineered the more you put yourself out there. And the only thing I can say is we we tried and we tried and we never stopped and we kept putting ourselves out there. But nonetheless, you know, every inflection point looking back felt like luck. So I'll tell you, a key part of my upbringing, my nurture, because there's nature and there's nurture and nurture is what is 80% of what you are, was community. Now, I was fortunate to be in a situation where I experienced the camaraderie of the community with my mom in the slums of India. The Gulf War taught me resilience, taught me community, taught me the power of of dealing with the risk and uncertainty that everything great is on the other side of risk and uncertainty. The Gulf War also taught me something very interesting is as I was going on that rickety bus, refugee bus from Kuwait to Baghdad to Jordan on the highway of death where buses were bombed and lying burned, as I looked around the bus, the adults were all laughing and singing and playing the guitar. And it taught me a very important lesson that, man, it's not the destination or the journey. It's the companions that matter, right? We all say, oh, don't focus mm. on the destination, focus on the journey. Or focus on the journey, don't focus on the journey, focus on the destination. No, it's neither, man. The destination and the journey will change. The companions matter. Who you're with can make you feel like a rock star or a peasant. I felt like a rock star every day of the week when I would visit the slums in Mumbai. And then I've been in places where I'm sipping wine in Napa and I'm just suffocated, right? And so those were formulated things. Then I came to Canada. I finished engineering. The status quo thing would be to, to get a nine to five job. Not the status quo thing, but that's what everyone does. And I happened to ask a couple entrepreneurs, what's the best job I could get, the best skill, if I want to be like you someday? Now, I could have, you know, it's fortunate that those people happen to be there in my purview to ask those questions. And they said, sales, sales is everything. Selling is everything because a big part of what you need to do is persuasive communication and nothing is going to force you to do that other than sales. If you want to learn a skill, <laughs> the best way to learn it is to put yourself in an environment that forces you to do it because motivation is bullshit for 90% of the people. Most people are not self-motivated. The only way they'll get up to do something is if it is a system, right? If they're in an environment that requires them to do it. And that was so true because imagine I had to practice cold calling or communication. I would never do it in front of the mirror. Never, ever in a million years. But I took a job mm. in cold calling at a startup. And, and the reason why I ended up in the startup is also in a way luck because I kept applying to jobs at like Xerox and other companies that needed salespeople and nobody would hire me. So I took the first job at the only company that would hire me, it was a small, like small business startup, like a telecom uh, product company. And I started picking up the phone and dialing. And the first call took me four hours to practice. I got to the decision maker and I hung up right away. But then, you know what? I need to make money. Now, that was a great inflection point because you learn to pivot your messaging. You learn to negotiate on the fly. You learn to build rapport on the fly. You polish your messaging. You really refine it. So those were some good skills. Now, my girlfriend at the time, now wife, was in medical school in New Jersey. So I started applying to jobs in New Jersey. Now, this is another inflection point. And this is a key one is I get a job in sales. I'm like, great, man. I barely work a year doing cold calling and I get a job in sales. And now at a tech startup that has raised some money. And at the time, startups weren't a hot thing. Like it wasn't on my mind at least. But nonetheless, at a company that had raised venture. And, and now that I think back, oh, you know what? That was that was good. Uh, I was fortunate to be able to work for companies that had raised money because then I would know later <laughs> in life the value of bootstrapping. Mm. This company, within a couple of months, the chief operating officer of the company quit. 
And really, I wasn't selling. I was required to talk to customers to figure out their pain points and then convey that through wireframes and specs to developers on what to build. And then, oh, guess what? I needed to also launch the company's website and all the marketing collateral. Now, what most people would do is I came to do a sales job and now I'm like doing a little bit of product management and I'm doing a little bit of sales engineering and I'm doing a little bit of sales and I'm also running your marketing. What would most people do? They would quit. I'm making $50,000, not significant. They would quit. The problem is I went on a visa to the US on a TN visa. So, And if I wanted to be with this girl who hindsight is the best decision of my life. I married her. She looked after the family and paid the bills till we could have an exit. If she didn't pay the bills, I don't think I would be able to do anything. <laughs> right? she's, a, she's a doctor. And, and she supported me through her struggles when she was a resident making no money. So you know, you know, I'm glad we did that. But that was the inflection point. And so I'm like, I have to stick with it. Right? And if you have to stick with it, and that's the problem. All your life, you're, when you're an immigrant in a country that's not yours and your parents are not well off, you're dealt with a hand that you have to play with. That's it. You have no option. And, and I worry for my kids right now because they have a lot of options. <laughs> but I didn't, right? And then I was like thrown on the deep end, talking to Tiffany, Armani, Simon & Schuster, all these big enterprises. Thrown on the deep end, yeah. translating into, uh, into uh, product requirements, then learned everything I needed to about marketing and end up launching a website. So what happened in the six months I joined there? Landed some big customers, translated what product to build, made sure the product was implemented, so learned about the customer success, and then launched a marketing site with videos on YouTube that trafficked pretty high, and learned about SEO and everything else. So it's the most invaluable six, seven months a year experience for me. The next inflection point was, unfortunately, the 2008 recession hit. And, you know, my wife is a brilliant doctor. And she went to med school in second year of undergrad without MCATs. Her brothers are also One's a PhD, one's a doctor. And now both our parents are Indian heritage. Two days before our wedding in India, we've all flown in there. And my company has basically laid off everyone, right? They're going under 2008 recession. And Lloyd is unemployed. The wedding gets called off. And the message relayed to my mother at the time was, and this is a woman I've been dating since my teens, right? So the message we made was that, uh, you know, your son doesn't have a master's degree. He's been bumbling around startups, doing the sales jobs. Oh, that old chestnut, eh? Yeah, our daughter is going to be a doctor and there is a set path. And, you know, we're just concerned that, you know, he's going to just be living off her and, and not make anything out of himself. And that day, my mom came to me and cried and she said to me, I gave up my career and never worked a day in my life to look after you. Did I raise you wrong? That formulated, that was probably the biggest, biggest inflection point in my life because I started running then and I never stopped. Then went out a couple of years later, went out and did a startups on my own with, with my co-founder Alex from university who came up with the idea for Boast AI. We came up with a couple other ideas. Didn't work out. Then we did an events company. Now, you know, think, think about it. You can take a bad inflection point. You can take rejection. And rather than making it rule you, you can let it fuel you. Me and my girlfriend, now wife, ended up getting married nine months nonetheless because we moved back to the West and you know, parental influence only lasts so long. She didn't want to plan her wedding because she was like distressed that the first wedding was called off. And so I planned the wedding. I gave her a dream wedding. 
I learned to coordinate all event logistics for three, four hundred people, three hundred fifty people or so. So now, from from that experience, I walked away with man, I got really good at hosting events. So when we started Boast, literally all our growth came from building community. What is the key thing to build community? Host events. I got really good at events. Did multi hundred to thousand people conferences, and you know what's really funny is that one rejection drove me so much that. We did a chatbot in 2013 that failed. Then joined the founding team of a company incubated by Bessemer, which was an AI sales assistant for for AI assistant for sales reps centered around the phone call. We could never get it to work. Six million tank there. In that time, sure. we also said we need to make money. Did an events company because we we're good at doing events. The third co-founder ran away with a quarter million in profits. Had to sue him because he locked us out of our accounts and announced another conference with a different name. And he paid us fifty thousand in installments over six eight months after lawyer fees, right? So it's like you never can catch a break. And unfortunately, Boast hit. Boast was automating research and development funding, government funding for businesses that are developing new products and technologies. And that hit. And the way we ended up getting the initial social proof and buzz and partnerships is cold calling to reach out to people and host events with influencers in the space. And that first event we hosted, 10 people, 20 people, one day 200 people showed up at the co-working space and the co-working space guys are like, man, you're running full-blown conferences here. It's not a pizza night anymore. You got to get out. And that evolved into what Traction is today with 100 plus thousand subscribers. So in a way, Traction became our community at Boast, right? Boast serves entrepreneurs and innovators. And the thing is, if we called it the Boast community, people would feel we're trying to sell them our service. So we said, let's build a community around the aspiration of our ideal customers. What do they aspire? To create impact, to build big companies, to get traction. So we called it traction. And so, you know, the, the, the key learning there is you can build three kinds of communities. A community of practice, which is teaching people how to get better at something. A community of product, which is educating people on your product and coming together to evangelize your product or a community of play like a Harley Davidson or like a Nike, which is coming together to have a good time. If you don't have product market fit and no customers, build a community of practice or a community of play. Don't build a community of product because people feel soulful. And so that, that was the journey. And what's really, really funny is that was such a big inflection point because it drove probably 80% of my resilience, th- those words from my mom. And the learnings from being able to host events, we got so good at hosting events that over time we've hosted like hundreds of events. And if you add virtual, it's several hundred. Yeah. Our investors who bought the company came to an event we hosted, loved it so much, reached out and asked, hey, can you be a venture partner? Can you join our venture partner network? We'll give you carry in any deals you send. And I said, hey, we have a business to run. Can't do this. We do this just for fun to help entrepreneurs, help our customers and our, and our ideal customers. They're like, what does your business do? And then they say, what? You're selling $100 bills for $20. You're automating all this funding. And this is your growth rate and gross margin. And you have no marketing team. And then they asked to invest. And we said, we don't need investment money. And they're like, we're not traditional VCs. We're growth equity. And between VC and PE, the money we give you, you can cash out and you can keep enough equity to play the long game. So we de-risk you in the short term. And you have enough stake in the company to play the long game. And so a lot of these things were little inflection points, right? Like, had we not bootstrapped the company, we wouldn't have been here. 
Like if you raise venture money, it's going to be very hard to sell 52% and still own 38% of your company and while cashing yeah. out. Now, the reason why we, we were never attracted to venture in the sense that we started bootstrap. There's one or two ways you bootstrap, right? One is you raise a small amount of money. And to me, that's kind of bootstrapping plus, right? But if you really want to bootstrap and you have no access to money or no money, the only way to bootstrap is to sell a service, right? This is how UiPath started. This is how Basecamp started. This is how Trello started. So we bootstrap by selling a service. When you're a services company, you're not attracted to any VC. And so you barrel, barrel through that. And then the first version of the product was some low code using Zapier and, uh, and Zoho Creator. And then it turned into a product. Yeah. But by the time we'd hit there, we had, we had line of sight to 10 million. So, you know, the, a lot of these things you can say, looking back, sound like very deliberate insights that people can use it to build a business. It's a playbook. But when we were doing it, it just felt like throwing spaghetti on the wall and we were lucky every once in a while. Okay. <laughs> so that's what I want to, want to say is like, as entrepreneurs, let's not delude ourselves. Because the few frameworks that came, I can just give you like the five key frameworks that, that, that as I think back, I wrote in the book. One is, if you don't have any customers, how do you figure out who to target? Hmm. In the early days, we picked up the phone and we're dialing for dollars. We were calling the stable companies, right? Manufacturers, construction, right? CPG, oil and gas. Nobody would talk to us. Two guys in a bedroom asking, hey, give me your R&D data and I'll get you money from the government. Sounds scammy. And even if it doesn't sound scammy, big four accounting firms are doing it. So yeah. then we started, we started running around to startup events and we found great camaraderie there. It felt like our tribe. And so we started going deep there and started doing community work there. We went to the manufacturing and oil and gas events, but we could never build that bond. We're like, felt like we were forced to wear suits. It's <laughs> like, who are these losers? So the key <laughs> learning there is when you want to figure out a market as a, as a product or a service, you got three things you need. Size of the market, preferably growing, right? It can be small today. A lot of people focus on is the market large? Even if the market is small, it should be growing because we bet on a startup market and all the mm. competitors are laughing, saying startups never pay. That's why we don't chase after them. And you guys are going to go belly up. You're going to shut shop in six months. What happened today is that contrarian bet that the startup world is going to explode played out very well for us over 10 years. Now all our competitors, those accountant firms, law firms, they're creating startup programs and it looks so fake, right? Like <laughs> because you want to serve them. But we were serving them and, and, and our message to the competitors were, we can't get your clients and you don't want to serve these people. Basically, yeah, we are this audience. So we have to serve ourselves and we're serving that audience as a function. So large growing market, propensity to pay and ease of access. It doesn't matter if you landed on the largest market with the highest propensity to pay. If you have no ease of access, you lose your mind. In the beginning, you just need ease of access. Take a few customers, right? The second thing was this framework around how startups are built in phases. Phase one is validation. Get 10 people to pay you to try it out. Talk to hundreds of people. And you have message market fit. Your message is resonating. They have a problem. You have a solution. You're solving it. That's all you're optimizing for. Next phase is product market fit. Maybe you expand from 10 people to 50. But now what you're looking for is higher retention. Meaning anytime they mm. have the problem, they keep coming back to you. Validation is, hey, I have a problem. Your message resonates. I'm going to try it. Product market fit is, man, 
every time I have this problem now, I'm going to keep coming back to you. So the goal is high retention and the leading indicator is engagement. If I don't use your product, I don't care what annual contract I signed up for. If I'm not engaging, mm. I'm going to challenge. So watch the engagement. Yep. Then you get to a point of product channel fit, right? You figure out a repeatable, scalable channel to acquire customers. Pick one and nail it versus trying to do 10 things. And at that point, when you figure out one kind of customer coming through one kind of channel, winning one kind of value, then you can look at scale where you're saying, okay, you know what? I figure out one thing that works. I'm going to put 75% of my energy fuel on fire and 25% of the time, I'm going to try new things, maybe new products, new markets, but one at a time, new products, new markets, new channels, those sorts of things. But don't go immediately to scale, be methodical again. Like let's validate it. Let's get a few customers and see if they stick. Let's figure it out if it's at a point of scale before you put fuel on fire. And as a founder, also, you grow through that journey, right? At validation, you are an individual contributor. At product market fit, still, you are an individual contributor plus plus. Maybe you hire two people. And so you become a manager. At product channel fit, you become a VP because now you have enough people and you know, you've hired a manager to manage those people. And the key is to never abstract to being a C-suite too soon because when you're C-suite, you're strategy a lot. You're not execution. Right? And internally, those titles won't matter to you, but for alignment's sake, it matters because let's say you raise a big round of funding and you hire big company execs, and then you realize, oh, I hired them as C-suite, but they're not, they're only discussing strategy. They're not like, you know, they need to hire people to hire people to do a job. Why aren't they executing? Well, they're not executing because in your mind, as a founder, a C-suite does everything. But really, when you go out there in the world and hire a big company C-suites or mid-sized company C-suites, they're doing strategy. They're not brass tacks in the execution. And so it's very important to think about that. The other learning was making sure you hire, ma- making sure you hire um, Swiss army knives, jack of all trades versus specialists in the early days, right? Because you need to adapt and you need to pivot. So a lot of, lot of those learnings that looking back, it was throwing spaghetti on the wall, <laughs> but you can pontificate and say, oh, I did this great frameworks. No, no. I, I, I have taken so many notes. I'm actually, I'm actually at saturation point. I don't even know what else. What else I could learn from you in the last, you know, in the last twenty minutes? Because the reason why it resonates so much for me is, as much as I do many things, um, they're always on on the sort of focus around delivering value, uh, and that's why I created the value community. Um, and it goes back to what you're saying about you know having an audience, but then becoming more engaged with them. And what I was finding is I was really frustrated with say posting stuff on LinkedIn and maybe having one or two people reply to it when I really wanted to have a conversation. And I wanted to have a, a call for 20 minutes with somebody to discuss solving a problem um, because I love solving problems. And, and one of the things that came out of the, the, the sort of value community was value execs, which is what you're saying. It's, it, it's, it's not the C-level per se. It's in that middle between operational and, and C-level where you can get involved in helping solve a problem and not necessarily be part of the the life the, the lifespan of the business, but you can always come back or be pulled back in if they need you to help them solve the problem or do the next thing. So that way you are fresh, um, but you're also not in the depth of of the running the business, which which I think is a, a sweet spot for many of us nowadays. We don't want to be involved in every business to the to the nth degree. We want to be involved just in the parts that we love to do. Um, which you know I think is is great to what you're saying. And I and I think the community part, because of the technology that's existent now, 
and, and I'm talking beyond, you know, like like we use Circle for our community, but there's, you know, WhatsApp, Telegram, um, those sort of tools. You can be in contact with people all the time um, and not in their face per se, but you can also be in their face if you need to because you can do a video call or, or whatever it is. And I think that's, you know, made communities a lot easier to be distributed and global. Definitely. You know, ultimately think about this if, if you don't take away anything. Building anything lasting is communication plus creation plus consistency because it's like chiseling a sculpture. You start heavy and then you refine it. But if the first time you start heavy and you don't see results and you stop, then you'll never get to the point where you can refine it, right? The same thing with content on LinkedIn or whatever. Initially, when I was posting, I was getting no reactions. But the last several posts, are it went into like, first I saw it boost into hundreds. Now it's boosting into thousands, right? Like a 500, 800, 1,000 plus. And so, but it, it, it didn't t- happen overnight. It took years, right? And I still feel I'm not consistent. Like the last post I made was a week or so ago, but I want to write every day because I think if I write every day methodically based on a certain framework, which is to provide value and educate my audience around two or three topics, right? Then I think I will keep building that up. So what are the key learnings there then if you, you know, from, from building audiences, building communities, like Traction is 120,000 subscribers today with events we've hosted where CEO of Uber has come, CEO of Twilio has come. The key learning there is figure out your ICP, right? Once, once you've figured out who to target based on ease of access, propensity to pay, and growing market size, then nail down that ideal customer profile. Where do they eat, breathe, drink, sleep? What are their problems? What are their pains? But moreover, what are their aspirations, right? Because their aspirations is what becomes a long-term thing for you beyond, because problems change, immediate problems. What are their long-term aspirations? What stands in the way of getting there? Then you write down their circle of influence. Who are the people they follow? Make a list of those. Who are the people they buy other stuff from? Make a list of those. Where are the places they hang out? Meaning what blogs they read, what magazines they read, what platforms they travel and on. Now, this gives you the circle of influence. Now, you understand the aspiration and what gets in the way of getting to that aspiration. You research the market to understand the white space that exists towards helping them get to that aspiration, you know the circle of influence. So a framework now that can easily help you is now start creating content, right? Like how do you build an audience? Consistently start creating content. Now we were lucky at Boast because when we did it, it was at a time where LinkedIn and Insta for business wasn't so prevalent. People were just using LinkedIn like a resume factory, like adding each other, basic social posts. Twitter was a little bit, but it wasn't great for you want to bring people together. So we found two channels that are particularly effective. One is just host meetups, right? Like I, like I talked about, invite the influencer. How did we know who to invite? Because we knew who they followed, who were the conferences and the events we went to were all high level platitudes from CEOs, which is not helpful to a zero to one founder or one to five founder. So we brought people who were at five or 10, which were more easily accessible. And then leveled up from there using their social proof to the next one and next one and next one. But I said the social proof of those speakers gave us instant credibility with that audience who was showing up and done over consistency had more and more and more and more and more and more people show up and show up and show up and show up and show up. Now, in parallel, what we did was that was a time where blogging was huge, but online content sharing on like platforms wasn't as huge for business purposes. 
But we said if we blog ourselves covering and talking about startup challenges, it'd probably take a year to get this SEO. Sure, consistency, but like we were bootstrapped and didn't have the money. So we contacted the local newspaper and said, well, can we write a column for you? Right. And they said no. Then went to a one down local blog, wrote there and got all our friends to share it. It got so much shares you could see back then, right? Like the social shares, number of shares. We sent it to the editor and the editor is like, wow, this is great. We'll give you a column online. The first column we called Startup of the Week. And I gave it to the founder who I covered. And now what happens? In a place where startups are not getting coverage, the local newspaper puts Startup of the Week. They blast it out to their whole network and all over the place. In two days, the editor calls me and says, Lloyd, if you commit to writing it every week, I will give you this as a print column. So now what happened was I got backlinks from a high domain authority site for two and a half years that I wrote. The next thing is the social proof that writer for the newspaper. Third thing is every morning, viral factor, every Monday morning at 6 a.m., this entrepreneur who's going to get covered, I send them a message saying it's coming out. They go, they, t- they buy the print papers, take a photo and start sharing it, right? And so that one-two punch of Social proof wow. from someone else, social, social, social proof from a big blog, a newspaper, combined with social proof from an influencer. Now, we wouldn't have landed there if we didn't understand the ICP, right? If you don't know the entrepreneurs and where they hang out and what they read and who they follow, you wouldn't come up with that, right? So, yes, looking back, it felt like it was a deliberate effort. I think this ICP understanding was more deliberate effort, but it was more like necessity is the mother of all inventions. So we're like, okay, we need to host an event. Who are some popular people these people follow? Boom, boom, boom. Where, what, what channels do they regular monitor? So that was a more deliberate effort. But a lot of other things, like we, we chanced on by just throwing spaghetti on the wall. But now to close this framework out, once you start creating content, right, just, and you do it with consistency, let's bring it, you know, not for 2012 times, but 2023 times. Say you have this list of influencers. Interview them on a specific topic. That is so niche for this audience that, you know, if it's building community, figure out the best, be the best community building uh, podcast kind of thing, right? Be very niche. And now you have this one piece of content that you can turn into video for YouTube, audio for podcasts, then you can turn it into shorts, you can turn the text into LinkedIn posts. And your cadence might look something like this, like a daily post on LinkedIn, a daily tweet, a daily short Insta TikTok. And then you got a weekly podcast release, you got a weekly newsletter, and then you can take that further if you want to open it up and turn that audience into a community. But watch how this is building. Now, the, the interesting thing is we started with audience plus community because these platforms weren't buzzing for business, like I said. Right. In 2023, what happens is we start with building audience and that's great, but you don't own that audience because you don't have their emails. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I said, if the algorithm changes, you're done. Right. Yep. If the algorithm changes, yeah. you're done. And, and uh, it happened with Nas Daily. They had 21 million subscribers on Facebook and initially 50% of the audience would see it. But then what happened was Facebook changed the algorithm. And this is what happens. They first show your content to your audience. As your audience gets hooked, now your audience starts seeing content from other people and then eventually sponsors. That's how these platforms grow. So you need to own your audience. And the fortunate thing for us was these platforms weren't prevalent 
And so everything was a landing page to sign up for a meetup or an online event. And a lot of people are stopping to do that. And I encourage you to go back to the basics and say, having an audience is great, but if you don't have their contact information, can you truly build a community and bring them together? So layer on aspects where you provide value, certain value where they have to provide you contact information. So maybe start a Substack, maybe open up these conversations as being recorded into live AMAs. I personally like in person. And I talk about this in the book, the mm. senses. Anytime you incorporate more than two senses, you build stronger connections. Where sound and sight, you become taste, touch, and smell. You're shaking hands, you're kissing babies, the smell of the food. You stay longer, right? And look at some of the biggest cult-like movements. They were all having in-person elements done on a cadence. And so it doesn't have to be a complex, like a Saster conference or attraction with a thousand people where you spent a year planning. But it can be like, you know, identify your super fans and give them some love and recognition in a soapbox so they self-organize and host events. Atlassian, $40 billion company, last year their community hosted self-organized 5,000 events. How crazy is that? That means you have 5,000 super fans at 100 a clip. You've engaged 500,000 without having your own marketing team. And what you've given them is some swag and some love and some soapbox. Now, a lot of people want to control the community and say, oh, you have to follow our guidelines and this and that. And can't control if you want to build a community. You have to just give them some love and, and some values. Oh, I think you spot on. I mean, that's that's uh, going back to what we're doing. That's exactly some of the stuff we've we've done differently. Is we've we we get the pe- we're trying to get the people in the community to be empowered to do what they think is the right thing. Um, one of the guys asked me yesterday, like, how far can I get involved? I said, as far as you want to get involved. Like, if you want to run the marketing, run the marketing. Like, you know, work with the rest of the people to help us to to grow the community. Uh, you know, it's because it, it's got to benefit everyone. Um, um, you know, to to get the sort of progress that you want, you've got to have people empowered to to grow it. Um, unfortunately, Lloyd, I've got to run. Um, we've got a little bit over, and I've got a person that I needed to chat to. Uh, can can we do a part two, maybe? Yeah, definitely, uh, we can do a, a part part two for sure. And meanwhile, uh, you know, just to close it out, here's the book from grassroots to greatness. I've put it for ninety nine cents, the digital copy, so everyone can access it. I wrote it because. I wanted to tell the story that the biggest innovations eventually become a commodity. But mm-hmm. in the age of generative AI, when all this talk is going on, and as someone who built an AI company that did well and is continuing to do well, it was powered by human-to-human connections. The world's biggest enduring brands were powered by human-to-human connections. And this is the yep. framework to do it from grassroots to greatness.com. Get it for 99 cents or you want the, uh, the colored collectible. It is uh, it's, you can it's get the beautiful. Yeah, we it's put beautiful. It. I was trying to I, I was trying to order it off the Amazon um, UK store, but it's not there yet. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know what? Send, so, me, send me your address. Send me your address. Um, I'm going for a bestseller campaign, and uh, yeah. when when that happens, I will ship you a signed hardcover. The front is embossed. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. Send ah, me your address. That looks amazing. I'll do that for sure. All right. Take care, yeah, man. Sounds good. Super. Thanks, Lloyd. All the best, say. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Heather Bicknell is our producer and editor. Thank you, Heather, for your hard work on this episode. Please subscribe to the series and rate us on iTunes or the Google Play Store. Follow us on Twitter at the DWW Podcast. The show notes and transcripts will be available on the website, www.digitalworkspace.works. 
please also visit our website www.digitalworkspace.works and subscribe to our newsletter. And lastly, if you found this episode useful, please share with your friends or colleagues.